Thanks. So when, he, uh, when James put in a plug for the youth ministry, even if you don't know a teenager and you just happen to see one down the street, grab them, stick them in the car. <laughs> be no problem. James said it was okay. So, yeah, totally. All right. So, uh, so I'm Pastor Joe. How are you guys doing? So if you don't know me, I'm Joe. All right. So uh, uh, Pastor Ron and Susan are celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary this weekend. So, yeah, it's really cool. I told Pastor Ron, I said, now when you go to weddings, you can stay out on the dance floor longer during that song thing. You know, that's what you get. But I hope that, you know, it's really, it's, a, it's, it's great to see that. So that's fantastic. They're away. He asked me to fill in. We're going to, uh, uh, I don't know if we're concluding this. We're going to talk more about being fearless. And so when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about um, whenever I study for my personal benefit and when I study, and then this is just me sharing what I study myself, is, is I always try to think about how do I put a handle on this so I can t- pick it up and carry it away, right? How do I take it and, and understand how to take the concept of being fearless? And the way that I can do that is, um, is by studying a person. We're going to spend an awful lot of time today talking about one person in the Bible, and that's King David. Now, we're not going to say everything about David, and the reason why we're not going to say everything about David is because we'd be here a lot longer than, uh, than just the next uh, you know, 15, 45, 50 minutes or so. Uh, as a matter of fact, just for you Bible geeks in, in, out there for like Bible trivia, it mentions in the Bible by name, Jesus, David, David's second. So we can't say everything about David, uh, but we're going to say a lot about David, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about his life and trying to understand this question, what made David fearless? What made David a man after God's own heart? And this was a question I had as I started looking into the life of David, and I came to this one event. So we're going to kind of do a lot of stuff to lead up to it. We're going to talk about that one event. We came to this one event that made David into a man after God's own heart and made him the fearless leader that we know him to be if you've read the Bible. So, um, so that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that and, uh, and really have the key to, to, to living living a life of faith, which is what fearless is all about. It's living a life of faith. And, and, and the key to living a life of faith is to live a life in God's presence. And how do you get into God's presence? So we'll talk about that. Um, so uh, the reason why we talk about David and the reason why we, we need to understand, and if you don't have, uh, if you haven't spent a lot of time, the reason why we need to spend time reading the Old Testament is because the Bible specifically says that the stories, the accounts, the real life stories in the Old Testament are there for an example for us. Some of them bad, some of them, hello, how are you guys? Um, last time I saw you, you were headed to South America, now you're back, all right, hello. Um, uh, hello. <laughs> I looked out up there, I'm like, I see this shiny thing? Oh, it's my friend's head. And... Uh, <laughs> Right, there, there, we can recognize one another. There's, see, there's a sheen that comes. It's the glory of God shining off of our, that's what it is. Right, gentlemen? It's the glory of God. All right, so anyways, uh, so good to see you guys. Um, so, so those things are there for our, for our learning and, for, and for, our, for an example for us. Some of them bad, some of them good. And the thing that I find is just amazing is if you read any other books of antiquity, Babylonians, Chaldeans, people like that, uh, you'll find that they made their, their kings and their leaders almost gods. They whitewashed anything bad, and they only presented them with extra special good stuff, right? Uh, and the Bible's not like that. He presents King David, a man that says he's a man after God's own heart, although we all know that David did some really bad things, Right? some really uncool things and suffer the consequences. So the Bible puts it out there warts and all because it's like this is real people. And that's an important thing for us to understand because a lot of times we think that when we fail, we disqualify ourselves from from the good things about God because somehow we think that we're only acceptable by God if we're perfect. And that's not it at all. And we're going to find that with David himself. So uh, let's start. Right at the beginning, uh, right at the beginning where we're introduced to David, and this is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So a little bit of background here. Israel did not have a king, and it wasn't supposed to have a king. It was supposed to be God was God, and the, and the prophets heard from God, and they let the people, and the people worshipped, and we were all supposed to be led by God and hear from God, right? And that really wasn't working out, and the people were like, we want to be like everyone else. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We want to be like everyone else has a king. We want a king. They have this. Why can't we have it? And finally God says, you want a king? Here's a king. Here's King Saul. He looked like a king. He sounded like a king. It felt like he should be a king. And almost right from the beginning, Saul started to go off the rails. And when he went off the rails, everything went bad. 
And, 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 and there, was a, there was a prophet, Samuel, and he was the prophet. And so when we talk about Samuel being the prophet of Israel, he had a school of prophets where he was teaching people to hear from God. But if God was going to speak to the nation, he spoke to one person, Samuel. Pretty powerful thing. And so he says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, he says to Samuel, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Saul had done some really bad things and he rejected him for being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. So that was, there was a horn, right? Like a, like a, a bull's horn, an oxen horn that they used and, and he would put oil in it. And this is an anointing horn, right? And so he said, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king from among his sons. God says, I've picked a king. So last time you got the king that you thought you wanted, now I'm going to pick the king. Now he picked him from among Jesse from the, the Bethlehemite. Now Jesse was the son of Obed. Obed was the son of Boaz, Boaz from the book of Ruth. So Ruth and Ruth and Boaz, their grandson was Jesse, and their great-grandson then would be David. David was the youngest of eight sons in Jesse's house. So really, as far as kind of power within the, comp within, the, within the family, right, he was like the youngest kid. He was the baby. Everybody looked down on him. You know, you don't know anything, right? He had, if he was the youngest of eight sons, he had some brothers who were actually adults when he was, or close to adults when he was born, right? And so he, by the time he's coming of age, and about the time scholars say that he's anywhere at, at this time, anywhere between 10 and maybe as old as 15, but probably 13. So think seventh grade kid. Seventh grade boy, something like that, when Samuel comes to see his dad. So Samuel says to God, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Do you notice that Saul is more concerned about retaining power than he is about even murdering the man who hears from God? Tells you, and God says that we can't have that as the king of Israel. We have to have somebody who is less concerned about power and more concerned about the things of God. And we'll see that later, by the way. So he says, listen, here's the, your cover story. Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. Samuel was going to listen to God. So Samuel went and did what the Lord said. He went to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming. They trembled because they believed that if Samuel had came and called fire down from heaven on, on Bethlehem to destroy it, that that's what would happen. So they're like, hey, do you come in peace? Do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he said, you guys come over with me. The whole town can come up, but you guys come over with me privately to the sacrifice. And so it was when he came that he looked at uh, Eliab. And he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab was Jesse's oldest son and clearly looked the part, right? Tall, good-looking, strong, good presence, nice handshake, you know, that kind of thing, right? And he said, surely this is the one. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is where we get this, God looks at the outward appearance, but man, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God is, going to, is less concerned about where, what you look like. Thank the Lord, right? He is less concerned about what we look like. He's less concerned about where we come from. He's less concerned about our socioeconomic status, our educational level. He's less concerned about those things than about our heart. Now, it says that man looks on the outward appearance, so, you know, take a shower and iron your shirt, right? And that's a good thing to do, but God looks on the heart. So he says, don't look at that because God looks in the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by him. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And then he says to Jesse, this is confusing. God sent me here to you. He's saying this to himself. God sent me to you. He said he was going to choose one of your sons to be king, and you've had all of your sons pass before you. Um, are, are, you got any more sons? <laughs> right? And think about what they thought about David, even in his own household. Because he says, are all the young men here? And he says, well, there remains yet the youngest, and he is there. There he is, over there, keeping the sheep. We haven't even... The prophet comes, right? The guy. 
in all of Israel who hears from God comes and says, Jesse, bring your family with you. I want to have dinner with you. We're going to have a sacrifice. I've got something special to tell you. And they don't even invite David. Think about what, what he's, what he, how he feels about himself. Even in his own household, he, he's looked down on. He's the guy that's out there keeping the sheep. When someone else could have kept the sheep, he's out there keeping the sheep because they don't even feel that he's important enough to bring in to see Samuel the prophet. Samuel says to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. He was ruddy, which means he kind of, you know, looked like he'd been out in the sun. He had bright eyes. He was good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, so something that's not said in the text here is that, is that when the prophet would take the horn of oil and pour it over the, over the person and anoint him to be the king, it was an entire horn of oil. So we're talking about oil that would go down over his head and down over like this, onto his clothes like this. He did it in front of his brothers and in front of his dad. But he didn't just like pour oil over his head and go, all right, see you later, right? He, he poured oil over his head and he prophesied to him. He said, you, God has chosen you. Maybe said some things specifically about who David was. You might think you're little. You might think you're this. You might think you're that. But God's chosen you to be the king over Israel. And that's your destiny. He made him a promise. I want you to keep that in mind. He made him a promise. The timeless, eternal God made David a promise. I'm going to make you a king. And then he left. Now, the next time we see, that, we see David... Is, is later in this chapter, I won't go into the whole thing, but as soon as the Spirit of God came on David, the Spirit of God left Saul, and God took another spirit and put it on Saul to torment him. God sent, yes, God, the loving God, sent a tormenting spirit on Saul to torment him. And every once in a while, he just kind of roid rage things, and he would kind of freak out, right? And so they said, hey, you know what? This is really not productive, uh, Saul. Um, what we need is we need a musician, now, here's something we know about David, right? David was good-looking. David was, looked like he was in shape. He was young, but he had potential. And he was actually a pretty good musician. It said that David played the lyre, right, which was basically an ancient version of the guitar. So David was the guitarist, and he sang. And he was pretty good at singing. And they said, we know a guy, and we can bring him in into your presence. And then if you start freaking out, he'll play a song, and it'll calm you down. And they said, good, bring him. So what happens to David? David gets anointed to be king. And what's the next thing that happens to David? He gets brought in into the king's tent. So you'd picture this. There'd be a big, giant tent. And the king's hanging out in there. And what does David get to see? David gets to see the king doing kingly things. He gets to see the scope of what it means to be the king. He gets to see some bad examples, but he gets to see generally how king's business is run. The king probably had a person in charge of taxation, and the king had someone in charge of his own servants, and the king had, you know, he had like cabinet members, right? He had somebody in charge of the army, and he had somebody in charge of this, and he saw the king making decisions, and he saw people coming in and out, and he saw the structure and how it worked. And the whole time he just sat there and played the songs and said, you're a little bit nuts, and every time I play, you're okay. But it was like a summer, right? But it was like a summer internship, right? That's all that everything you're hearing now is just the JSUV, the Joe Stablark's unauthorized version of the, of the story, okay? So this is all, so he's playing the guitar and playing the guitar, your little nuts, and he's singing the song, he calms down, but he gets to see this, right? So what is happening here? God is beginning to, right? It looks like God is beginning to fulfill this promise. Hey, you're just a shepherd boy. I need you to see what kings do. Let's give you a position in the king's household. He ultimately became Saul's armor bearer. He gave him a spot. He said, hey, when I walk around, you carry my armor. If I need a sword, I'll say sword. You hand me the sword. So he gets to hang out with the king. He gets to hear the king's conversations, right? This is a really good thing, isn't it? Okay, so then we skip to 1 Samuel 17. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but 1 Samuel 17 is a story about David and Goliath. So how many of you guys saw the movie Troy? Shame on you. That was rated R. All right, so, but, <laughs> yeah. Snagged again. But anyways, except for a couple of scenes, you have to skip through. Troy's a pretty good movie, right? Okay, so, uh, so in, in the movie Troy, a lot of the ancient things, that was not an uncommon thing, which was called singular competition. So they'd have two armies come together, and, and the kings would go, hey, listen, instead of having our armies clash and lose lots of men, why don't you take your best guy, we'll take our best guy, we'll have them fight, and whoever wins will put the whole thing, the whole war on these two guys fighting. 
And that's what, that's what they had agreed to. And they said, to, the, they said to, the, to King Saul, hey, how about you do that? And Saul's like, yeah, 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 bring out your guy. And they bring out this guy who had clearly had a problem with his pituitary gland because he was like nine feet tall. And he's this giant, right? And now no one wants to fight him. Into the story, you find, you find David walking up because his dad had sent him, had given him basically a present to go and get news about his sons and bring it back to him. But he says, go and bring some food to your brothers who are in the army. And when he walks in, what had been happening was 40 days, and 40, for 40 days, Goliath had come out, and now he was mocking God. And, he's mo- and no one would fight Goliath. Everyone was afraid of Goliath. And now, did you guys know that, that Saul had actually offered an incentive plan for someone to fight Goliath. Did anybody know that? Okay, he offered him three things. Cash money. He said, I, it doesn't say how much. He said, I will give, I've got, right, 100,000 bucks to the winner, right? I'll give money to the winner, one. I will make his household and his father's entire household tax-free for all their lives. No taxes. It's pretty good, right? We're here in the state we live in. Sounds pretty good, right? To be tax-free, kind of liking that, right? So no taxes, cash money, and my oldest daughter is single, and you can marry her and be my son-in-law. So you get a girl, money, and free taxes. And if you beat Goliath, some serious street cred, right? Because you just beat a nine-foot-tall guy, right? So there's a lot of incentive, and yet no one would take it because everybody's like, that all sounds nice, but being dead, I can't cash in on any of it. So he offers a monetary reward, and we know what happens. If you read it, and if you haven't read it, go back and read it, 1 Samuel 17. So David hears him mocking God. The Spirit of God is on David, and he's like, you can't mock God like that. None of you guys will do this. I'll do it, right? And they go, okay, well, you go out there, and they try to put him out. And long story short, he's like, he's like, there's no way I can win. This dude's got armor on, and he's a warrior. And so, but David had something. David was really good with a slingshot. And so it was kind of like an Indiana Jones thing, right? Where the guy's like, what, what, God? And Indiana Jones just pulls out a gun and shoots him, right? So that's what it was like. The guy goes, the guy goes you come here, come here, come close to me so I can smack you. And, uh, and David goes, I'm not getting anywhere near you. And he takes the slingshot, whooshing, right? And it hits him right between the eyes with a rock. Sinks the rock into his skull. Now, the Bible actually doesn't say that he killed him right there, but he may have. But it sinks the rock into his skull, falls to the ground, David runs up, takes Goliath's own sword, because David didn't have a sword, takes Goliath's own sword, grabs Goliath's head, chops it off. All the guys are like, really? i got to read this. This is awesome. And chops it off and holds his head up. Probably had to hold his head up like this because it was a giant head, right? Holds his head up, freaks the Philistine army up. They run away. The Israeli army goes, woo-hoo! And they go after them, and they win the war, right? Now David's got money. Tax-free for his, for his family, and he's got the offer to be the, the, a prince in Israel. So now he's gone from just an intern to now he's, just, he's, the, he's the guy, right? He's the famous warrior. People have tattoos that say David on their arms, right? He's got the whole thing, right? And, he's, and you can see this plan, right? You can see God's promise through Samuel starting to come to pass, right? Now he's getting important. Now he's, he's won a battle and he's proved himself. And now he's going to be, right, well, he eventually, he's, he said no to, to being the king's son-in-law. He's like, I don't, and he was really kind of like, didn't feel good about himself because he was, didn't really understand who he was. And, and, and he says, I'm not going to, he eventually became the king's son-in-law by marrying his second oldest daughter, but he didn't marry his oldest daughter, but this is another part of the story. But that's, that's what happened, right? So now you can see this, the fulfillment of this is coming to pass. This is an amazing thing, Right? Then in 1 Samuel 18, we're going to actually read in 1 Samuel 18, and, and, and what, we'll, what we'll read is we'll find out that Saul made David, he didn't allow him to go back to his dad after the thing with Goliath. He said, I want you to stay here and be an officer in my army, right? Now he's going to be in charge of things. He's going to learn to lead. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, it says, now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. Now, Jonathan was Saul's oldest son. He was the crown prince of Israel. And he became best friends with David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took David that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan, listen to what Jonathan did. Jonathan was more concerned about God than he was about his own position. This is the great thing about Jonathan. Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David. With his armor, 
even to his sword and his bow and his belt. He took off the things that made Jonathan look like the crown prince of Israel and gave them to David. Jonathan was saying, I know that I'm in line by law. I'm in line to get my, to get my father's crown when he dies. But really, David, I can see that the spirit of God is on you and that's your destiny. How do you think David felt? David's probably 17, 18 years old at the time. Pretty heady times, huh? I mean, pretty amazing thing when the, when the, when the crown prince of, of Israel, who is older than him, says, I love you, and I can see God's hand in your life. Here, take, take my armor, take my sword, take my belt, take the things that make me look like the prince, and I want you to have them, because one day, David, I think you're going to be king, not me. Pretty heady times for a you know, 17, 18-year-old young man, huh? So, let's keep reading here. Verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he behaved wisely. And Saul set him over as men of war. Ultimately, he became the captain of the army of Israel. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people. See what's happening now? Now all the people are like, David's pretty cool. Saul's a little nuts. David's pretty cool. It says, he was accepted in the sight of all the people... And also in the sight of Saul's servants. So the cabinet members, the people that were in charge of the household and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, the, the civil society that was, that was Israel, the street guys and the housing and urban development secretary, and, you know, all those guys, right? Those guys there that were, that were in charge of the, of the kingdom were looking now at David and going, yeah, we would take you as our king because you're, you're doing a great job. We like what you're doing. This is, this is you can see this unfolding, right? David is becoming king, isn't he? Not so fast. What happened as they were coming home. When David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines, now David was returning, so there was a parade. He was returning from a successful battle against the Philistines, and Saul was there with him because he was the king, but David was the captain of the army, that the women came out. Now, hold it, hang on a second. He's got cash money. He's got free taxes. You can be the king's son-in-law, everybody likes him, and now women are coming out. You're like 18, 19, maybe 20 years old by this time, right? I mean, you kind of got it going on, don't you? They're coming out and they're singing. Now he's like Ringo Starr, right? He's like, it's the Beatles, right? It says the women were coming out and they're singing and they're dancing and they're, they're coming to meet Saul with their tambourines, but here's what they're singing. The women sang as they danced and they said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. There's an unfortunate lyric if you're King Saul. What were they saying? Saul's great, David's ten times better. Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed only thousands. And now what more can he have but the kingdom? And so Saul eyed David from that day forward and he didn't trust him. See, everything starts to turn out as planned, and then, and then this hits. And I won't go into Saul, into Saul, and, into, into eight, 1 Samuel 18 through 20, but Saul starts to kind of go crazy. Did you know that, did you know that he, didn't, he didn't try to kill David just once by throwing spears at him? He tried to kill him three times. David's a smart guy, but he was, he was loyal, and he wanted, to, he wanted to serve the king. So one time he's playing music, and, and, and Saul's kind of going nuts. He goes, hey, let me play a song for him. He starts to play a song for him, and it doesn't matter. Saul picks up spears and chucks him at him, and David's like, wah, wah, right? And, and he runs away, but then he comes back. He's like, hey, it was probably just one of your incidents. And then later, when he's, when he's sleeping with his wife, because now he's married. He's probably in his early 20s now, uh, early to mid-20s now. And he's sleeping with his wife. He married um, uh, his second oldest, uh, Saul's second oldest daughter, who I have a hard time naming her because it's M-I-C-H-L. How would you pronounce that? Yeah, well, how would you pronounce it? Michael. Yeah, that sounds weird for me to say that David married Michael. So um, <laughs> we'll call her Michelle. No, uh, so I don't know. It just feels weird to me. But anyways, so, so David married Michael, but Michael's a girl, so okay. All right, so David married Michael, and I'm sure, I hope somebody tells me how to actually pronounce it because it sounds like Michael to me. And anyways, all right. So David is, is in bed with Michael, his wife, and, and, they, um, and Saul decides to send his military police to go get David and kill him. That was the second time. 
and, and, and Michael actually has to help him escape. And she helps him escape, and he climbs out a window, right, climbs out a window, escapes into the night, and then afterwards Saul repents, and, and David comes back. And then it was the third time that he starts chucking spears at him again to try to kill him, that David's like, all right, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but you keep throwing spears at me, and I think I'm getting a message here that you want me dead. So he escapes and he goes into hiding, and then Jonathan, his best friend, says, well, listen, I'll check things out for you, David. So here's what's happening. There's a feast that's coming up. Don't show up for the feast. You're supposed to be here, but don't show up for the feast. I'll tell my dad that I gave you permission to go back to your home to celebrate with them. If he's like, oh, okay, cool, then everything's cool. It was just Saul being Saul. Otherwise, we know that he really is intent on killing you. So he, that happens, and, and Saul goes, where's David? And Jonathan says, well, I, I gave him permission to go home. And Saul picks up spears and tries to kill his own son, Jonathan. And that's when Jonathan knows Saul's really going to kill David. So he meets him in secret and says, David, I don't know what to tell you. They're going to try to kill you, and he's not going to rest until he does. By the way, the army that you trained and that you're head of, um, they're going to use that to try to kill you, and he's telling people that you are actually trying to have a coup and take over the kingdom from him. And I know it's not true, but that's what he's saying to everyone, and you've got to go. And Saul runs, or David runs. And this is where we get to the crux of the, of the, of the, of the study. 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. You want to know where David became a man after God's own heart? 1 Samuel 21. Here's where David became a man after God's own heart. Here's where the process really started. The process did not see, here's our problem. We see everything leading up to that, and we see David becoming king, right? It's all looking good. He's gaining power. He's gaining influence. People are liking him. He's adding to his resume. He's, he went and got his uh, master's in military science, whatever. He, he's getting all the stuff assembled so he looks right, and then it all is gone, and David runs into the night. Here's what we know. David is alone, he's afraid, he's uncertain of his, for himself, for his family. You know that David ultimately had to take his mom and dad and send them out of Israel completely for their own safety? And he's afraid of his future. His wife is not with him, his friends are not with him. We'll find out as we read this that when David fled, he didn't take his go bag, he didn't take any food. He didn't even take a sword with him. He didn't have anything. He just ran. He doesn't have any friends with him. He's all alone. And where did he go? Where did he go? To Ahimelech, the priest. See, what we need to understand here is this, is that there wasn't a Jerusalem at the time that was controlled. There wasn't a temple. There wasn't a, a structure. That would come years and years and years later. Right now, what there was in Israel was there was the tabernacle, which is a giant tent, the tent of meeting, and the ark was there, and, the, and, the, and the, the, um, the, the whole tabernacle was set up, but it was set up in a tent. And that tent had crossed over Jordan, and it moved around within Israel, and now it was in the town called Nob, and Ahimelech was the priest. So he went to the tabernacle tells us something about David, that when he was in trouble, what did he do? He went to God. He went to God. He didn't try to solve it on his own, he went to God. It says, David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David. He said, whoa, 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 what's going on? Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? You usually travel around with an entourage. What's going on? And so David lied, and he lied for his own safety, but also for Ahimelech's safety as well, because he didn't want Ahimelech to know what was going on Ultimately, Ahimelech would be killed for what he was about to do. He said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me to, on some business and said to me, don't let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. I've directed my young men, which he didn't have. He said, you're looking for my, my entourage. You're looking for my, my, uh, uh, the, the group of people that would be with me. Uh, I ordered them to such and such a place. Now, now, now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. Do you have any food? David didn't even have any food. He went from having everything to having nothing. He didn't even have a loaf of bread. Here's what, here's what happened. Three things happened right here. There are three things I want us to know that happened in this, ensuing, in this ensuing, the rest of this account, that tell us how David became a man after God's own heart. 
how David got the thing that made him fearless. You know what the thing that made him fearless was? It's going to sound counterintuitive. It was humility. Humility was the key because humility is the key to the presence of God. The presence of God was the key to faith. Faith is the key to being fearless. Here's what, here's what he said. The priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. David answered and said to the priest, Truly the women have been kept from us for about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy. The bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessels this day. So he gave him the, the holy bread. What is the holy bread? The holy bread was something called the show bread. Let me tell you what's going on here because we're not Jews generally, and so it's, we need to understand what's going on. In the temple, you had the holy place. And no, so there was like a veil. Picture this is the veil, and behind that is the holy place, right? And in the holy place was the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of God in the nation of Israel. Inside the Ark were three things. There was the, a copy of the Ten Commandments, right? The stone tablets that Moses had. There was uh, Aaron's the original high priest, there was his staff that had budded. They stuck that in there. And then the third thing in there was a cup of bread called manna. Did everybody know what manna was? Okay, when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and they were wandering around in the desert, there were a couple of million of them, God fed them miraculously every day. They came out of their tent and there would be pieces of bread lying on the ground. And there was only enough bread for that day, and they couldn't save it for the next day or else they get moldy. There's a whole story in there as why it was like that. But they had to go out and get bread every day. God fed millions of people bread and water every day miraculously in the wilderness. He said, I want you to take a cup of this bread and put it in the covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant, and it won't go bad. And that way you'll know that I have provided for you and I am faithful. Now, you couldn't go into the temple to see the Ark of the Covenant. Otherwise, it would have been like the whole Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and we would have, our faces would have been melting off. Maybe. All right, so, so, so you couldn't go in there. So what was out here? There was, a, there was a veil, and there were two tables on either side. On this side, there was a little table that had incense on it. And in the afternoon, when they offered prayer, they would, they would fire up the incense, and the smoke from the incense represented the prayers of the people and the smoke would go through the veil because it's just like a tapestry it would go through the veil into the holy of holies signifying that what we did out here our prayers went into god's presence onto the mercy seat and he heard us cool thing right so that was us going in and then over here there was another table that had a stack of bread on it it was called the show bread, and there were 12 loaves of bread. Whenever people brought sacrifices, the part of the sacrifice was a grain offering, and they'd bring the grain offering, and then wave it in front of God, and then they'd offer it, right? And then they'd take that grain, and then make this bread, right? And the bread was called the show bread. Show bread, the best English translation of the original Hebrew is the bread of his face. What it meant was it was the bread of God's presence, so you couldn't see the manna, but it was representative of God, of the manna that was inside the temple, that was inside the Ark of the Covenant, and it was representative, and it was God coming out and saying, remember the manna? I'll provide for you. I'll provide for you because I'm with you. My face sees you, and I'm with you. And that was the purpose of the, of the bread. And every week at Sabbath, they would change the bread. They would go up, they make more bread, they go up, they take the, this loaf of bread off, these loaves of bread off, they put these loaves of bread on, so it was always fresh bread. And then the priest had the right, that's what, that was the bread that they ate. They took the animals that they sacrificed, cooked them, they took the bread, and they ate that. That's what they did. So when David shows up, it's the night of the Sabbath, they've just taken the bread off the, off the temple, and they said, we do, the only bread we have is the bread we just took down from the temple. That's what the show bread is. Why is that important? We'll see in just a second. He says to him, he says, the only thing we have, so the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread but the show bread, which had been taken down from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day that it was taken away. Verse 7, we'll skip verse 7 for the sake of time. There's this guy Doeg that ultimately got Ahimelech killed. Um, but verse 8, David said to Ahimelech, is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor weapons with me because the king's business required haste. Yeah, the king's business was he was trying to kill me and my haste was me running away. So the priest says this, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. 
for there's none other except that one here. And David looks at it and says, there's none like it. Give it to me. Now, what happens? What happens? Let's back up. You see, we know what is going to happen. We know what's going to happen. We know that, um, hang on a second, let me grab my. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, there, hang on. I want to make sure I get it right. Oh, there it is, sorry. Um, we know what's going to happen. We know that um, we know that he's been told he would be king. We know what's happened to this point. If you've read the whole story, you know what's going to happen. You know that people will be killed. Lots of people are about to get killed, including Ahimelech and his entire family and everyone in the village of Nob is going to get killed and their kids. We know that Jonathan will eventually be killed before this is all over. We know that David's reputation is ruined. Inside of Israel, he's called, labeled a terrorist and a traitor. That he would, the, the story that they give to Israelinews.com is that, is that David was trying to overthrow the kingdom, and that's why we're chasing him. David flees Israel, goes to the Philistines, who he was trying to kill all the time before, and the Philistines are like, hey, isn't that David? Why are we even having him here? Why don't we take him and kill him? And so he starts acting crazy. And it says he actually like lets spit run down on his, on his face. And he's like, Aah! right? And they're like, he's a nut. So everybody thinks, everybody thinks the reason why David is out of power outside of Israel is because he lost his mind and he's gone crazy. Everybody inside is told David is actually a terrorist who's trying to overthrow the country, and that's why we're chasing him. His reputation is ruined. He loses his wife. Saul gives Michael to another man to be married. He loses his wife. He loses everything. We know that Jonathan would be killed. We know that the nation of Israel will be in turmoil, in turmoil for more than a decade. There will ultimately be a civil war inside of Israel before this is all done, and thousands of people will be killed. We know that the army that David trained and led will hunt him around like a criminal in the wilderness of Israel. Anyone know how long David was in the, in the wilderness for? Six years. Six years. Six years ago, I didn't have a goatee. Six years ago, Mitt Romney was running for president. Six years. A lot of things can happen in six years, right? Six years is a long, long time. Six years he ran. Six years. We know that there will be a civil war. We know that finally, finally, um, David will become king. Kind of. First he'll become king over two tribes, and then he'll become king, finally, after another seven years, he'll become king over all of Israel. We know that what God had told David here will eventually happen. Anybody know how old David was when he became king over all of Israel? Forty. Forty. King in Hebron, seven years. That means he was 33 when he finally became king over two of the tribes. When, when Saul was killed, he was 33. He was running for six years. That means he was 27 when he, when he was out of there, right? When was he told he was going to be king? 13 to 15. Make the math easy on me and call it 15. And say it's 25 years from the day that, that the horn of oil was poured over his head until the day that, he, that the promise was fulfilled. Is God faithful? Yes, he is. That wasn't the point. Now, we know that's going to happen, but at this moment in time, when he's knocking on the tent post of the tabernacle and Ahimelech answers, what does David know? He knows nothing. All David is doing is staring into the abyss, and here's the thing that we need to understand. Many of us are sitting here, many of you are sitting here right now, and you've been promised something from God. And it seems like so much time has passed, and you've been knocked around by circumstances that you've given up on that dream. And all you're doing is staring into the blackness saying, it's over. And here's what happened. David may, may have even thought in his heart that it was over. And all he was going to do was run. But three things happened. One, the only bread he had was the showbread. Two, he got the sword of Goliath. And three, he came into the presence of God. Here's what happened. 
one, the showbread was a representation of God's historical faithfulness to Israel. God could speak to David's heart and say, David, I've been faithful to the nation of Israel since before you were born. Don't you think I'm faithful? What would David's answer be? Well, yes, God, you're faithful. David, you're in your mid-20s now. Do you remember when you were a young punk and thought, that, thought you were immortal and you would go after Goliath? Do you, think that, do you think that you killed Goliath in your own strength? No. Here's the sword of Goliath. I want you to remember my personal faithfulness to you. My personal faithfulness to you. I'm faithful generally to the nation of Israel. I know your name, David, and I'm faithful to you. And in that moment in time, I think that David saw those two things, and that's why he says, oh, there's none like it. I think at the moment in time, he saw this, and you know what he did? He remembered all the way back to when he was a kid, and he remembered the feeling of the oil pouring over his head in the presence of his brothers who looked down on him and his father who wouldn't even let him come to see the prophet. And here's the prophet telling him, I've got a promise for you. From God himself, you'll be king. And he remembered that promise. And it helped him understand that although he was part of the story, he was not the story, that God was the story, and he was part of God's story. And he could trust God. Here's the thing. What was the key to David's fearlessness? What was the reason why he could run but not take matters into his own hands? He had the opportunity to take matters into his own hands many times. He had Saul dead to rights in a cave, could have killed him, didn't. He was in Saul's tent and took his sword, could have killed him, didn't. He could have joined with the Philistines in the final battle that Saul and Jonathan were killed in. And maybe someone would have thought that, that David might have been the one that killed him. And he held back from that battle. And he didn't. And God brought about the end of Saul on his own without David's involvement. In other words, God brought about something in David's life without David being directly involved in it. What a concept that God could actually do something without my own direct involvement. And me grabbing a hold of it and trying to hold on to it. What allowed David to then not kill Abner? Uh, who, was, who was Saul's general, or not kill Ishbosheth, who was Saul's son. That's why there was a civil war, because Saul's son, Ishbosheth, took, uh, because Jonathan was dead, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, took the kingdom, and there was a civil war between the, between the two tribes, between the ten tribes and the two tribes, like this. And ultimately, Ishbosheth was killed, was murdered by his own people, and David had nothing to do with that. What allowed that to happen? It was humility. This is God's doing. If God has told me that I'm going to be king, it is God's doing. And if it's God's doing, it is God's power that will do it. And I can take my hands off of it and allow God to be God and me to just be David. Humility says this. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Oftentimes we do not humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. We try to make it about our own resume. And we don't give God any space to lift ourselves up. A lot of times what happens when that happens is that, is that we get to a place where we get discouraged and we give up on our dreams. Here's what I want to do, right? Every one of you guys should have gotten one of these pieces of paper when you walked in. So every one of you should have one of these pieces of paper and all the moms probably already have a pen, right? Because in your pocketbook you have a pen, Advil, tissues, duct tape, something right? Spare batteries, right? Keys to your friend's house, stuff like that, right? And the guys are like, pen, right? <laughs> so if you don't have a pen, we got like 150 pens back there, right? Uh, and, and some of the ushers, they can help you with a pen. If you don't have a pen, all right, now we're going to write. We're going to take a couple of minutes, just a couple of minutes, and we're going to write. But I don't expect you to write everything. Maybe just jot down something to remind you. Uh, and then my, and you'll see the weekly challenge is to take some time. Please take some time this week, today, tomorrow, make an appointment for yourself, take some time and get alone with God and look at this. That's what these notes are for. These notes are not notes for cool things I said. These notes are cool things God is going to tell you when you're alone. Okay? 
and answer these three questions. God had these three questions, these three things that he showed to David. He showed David his historic faithfulness to Israel. He said, I'm faithful. He showed David his, his, his personal faithfulness to him. He said, I'm faithful to you. I know your name. And then he reminded David of the dream and vision that he had given him when he was a young man and said, I'm going to take care of that. Here's the question for us. One, the event that reminds me of God's historical faithfulness. Not historical faithfulness in my life. The event when I think, is God faithful generally to his word? What do I think of? How do I know? What evidence do I have? You see, a lot of times Christians are blamed for being mindless. We think that, we think that oh, you just have to believe. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says faith is. Faith is when you have evidence that something, though unseen, is yet real. God does not require us to check our brains at the door of the church. He gives us evidence. He had given, he had given David evidence to believe him. That's the reason for the plagues in the Old Testament and, the, and, the, and, the, and all the amazing things that happened because he was trying to convince the people, I'm going to show you that I'm God. I part of the Red Sea. Now you have to believe in me because I've showed you that I'm real, right? Then, then they fed them with manna and he kept that manna. He kept those things there to show David that he was real. When we think about God's faithfulness, what is the proof that God is faithful to his word in your mind? It could be a lot of different things. Just jot that down. If you don't have anything, let me remind you of something. Romans 5, 6 says this, that God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's sign of faithfulness to us. It rings through the ages that God is faithful. Jesus Christ is God's sign of faithfulness to, to, to people in general, that he is true to his word. If you don't have anything else, write that one down. That's a cool one. Okay. The second one, the event that reminds me not that God is faithful generally, but that God knows my name and has been faithful in my life. I want you to think back. Is there something you say, yeah, it was totally clear that this wasn't me, this wasn't somebody else, this wasn't luck, this was God intervened in my life, and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was him to show me that he knows me, he knows Joe, he knows all about me, and he still stepped into my life with his presence. Now, if you don't have that, one of two things has happened. Either one, you do not have a relationship with God, and that needs to get fixed, or two, you're not remembering. Let me help you. If you're here right now and you're a Christian, I want you to think back from before you were a Christian, from before you committed your life to Jesus Christ, okay, think back to your life before you committed your life to Jesus Christ. Was there a time when you were pretty certain that you should have died? An event where you were certain something happened. Raise your hand if that's you. You know, like, yep, I could have died right then. Car accident, something like that, car, something, right? Uh, me, my hand's up too. And I'll tell you the story. Get, keep your hands up, I'll tell you a story. I won't name names for, to, to protect the guilty. But I was with a friend of mine. We were all in a car. We were teenagers. We'd been drinking. And we're out on 150. If you know 150, uh, Woodhouse Avenue, as it turns into 150 and goes through Wallingford and out into North Branford, you know that road? It kind of goes down the side of the hill into those S's there. Well, this guy was driving, and he, and he was drunk. We were all drunk, and he decided he was kind of a depressive drunk. And he decided that he didn't want to live. And he hit the accelerator going through those S's and coming down. And it took till about the time we got to where those, uh, where those soccer fields are when we're hitting him in the head to try to get him to stop the car because if he died, that was his deal. But we, quite frankly, would like to live, right? So here's the question. You raise your hands. God, you know God rescued you. God's safe. God demonstrates his love that, that while well, he died for the ungodly, right? Let me ask you a question. You're telling me that there was a time when you had not yet committed your life to Jesus Christ that made you an enemy of God and yet he still saved your life? And he saved your life so the circumstances could give you an opportunity in the future as to whether or not you'd make a decision for him. Maybe write that one down. Have we ever even gone back and thanked him for the times that he rescued us from death went before we were even Christians? Kind of a crazy thought, crazy concept. Anyways, write that one down. Write something like that down, an event that shows me. I, I have a whole list of things. It's an amazing thing. You should just try it sometime. Just say, let me just remember all the times I should be thankful that, that God has shown himself faithful in my life. That's just like one tiny little insignificant thing. Much bigger things in my life that he's shown himself faithful. 
It'll change your perspective. The third, and the, here comes it right now. The, I put as yet unrealized. Because it, just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't. Has God spoken to you? Maybe in a dream, maybe in a vision, maybe in somebody else coming up to you and telling you something from God and it just went, maybe you're reading the Bible and it just goes, and God speaks to you and says, hey, Joe, which would be weird if you weren't Joe, but to me, he says, hey, Joe, <laughs> this is what I want to do with your life. You want to come? So we're going to make you. So you're going to be cool? You want to come with me? This is going to be awesome. You want to come? Do you remember that? Do you remember God speaking to you, giving you a dream, giving you a vision? The thing that makes me so angry was when people give up on that vision as if God has forgotten. We serve a God who exists outside of time. How could, how could, how could a few circumstances over a few years somehow mean that it's too late? As long as you and I are still sucking oxygen out of the atmosphere, it's not too late. It is never too late. Who here knows the, who here knows the, the, the Great Awakening? Ever here, you, we need to look up the Great Awakening. We need to be aware of church history. The Great Awakening is, is, is the largest revival in the history of the world. It is responsible indirectly, but it is responsible for the formation of the United States of America. And there was one man, there was a couple of men, but there was one man who was, who was primarily at the center of it, and his name was John Wesley. John Wesley is where we get the Wesleyans and where we get the Methodists and all that kind of stuff like that from. Do you know that, that Wesley thought that he was going to be this great man of God and he actually came from England to the colony of Georgia as a missionary and failed, had to sneak out. That happens when you have an affair with the governor's daughter and bad things happen, and he failed as a missionary. He wasn't even a Christian at the time. He was just religious. John Wesley, the man behind the Great Awakening, the largest revival of Christianity in the history of the world, did not preach his first sermon as a born-again Christian until he was 40 years old. So do not tell me that it's too late. Caleb and Joshua were the only two people that believed God when God brought the nation of Israel to the, edge of the, to the edge of the River Jordan. Everybody else quailed at the, presence, at the presence of the Canaanites and said, we can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb said, what are you, crazy? God's with us, we can do anything. And God sent them out into the wilderness for 40 years to wander around until the generation that didn't believe him died, but he kept Caleb and, and Joshua alive. And Caleb was 80 years old, 80 years old, because he was 40 when they got there, and he was 80 years old when, when he went over with Joshua into the land of Canaan. And after all the battles, here's Caleb, he's 80 years old, and he goes, he goes God promised me land, I'm going to go get it. Dude was 80 years old. And I'm like, you go. He goes, all right, put my teeth in right now, and I'm going to go get the land, let's go. Right? That, probably didn't put his teeth in, but that's how I think of it. Anyways, so, you know, let's go, right? He was 80 years old and it says that Caleb went and conquered the land that God had given him as an inheritance. Huh. If you're still alive, it is not too late. It is only too late if you give up because God has not given up on you. And if God gave you a dream or a vision about your destiny, he is well able to bring it to pass. The question is simply this. Do we trust him? I'll finish with this one last verse help us understand how this works. Excuse me. I don't know how that happened, but okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Here's a New Testament example of a guy like David. Seemed to have everything going for him. He was, he was, he was the head of the class of the Pharisees. He knew everything there was to know, and God had to knock him off his horse and take his sight away from him and send him into the wilderness before he could actually be useful as a Christian. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul, went around telling people about Jesus on these great missionary journeys. And here in 2 Corinthians, he's writing a letter to the, to the church at Corinth that he helped found, and he has to defend his own ministry. That's what first, 2 Corinthians 1 through 5 are basically him defending his apostleship because other people had come into a church that he had founded and said, Paul doesn't know anything he's talking about. He's not even an apostle. So Paul defends his apostleship, and then we pick it up here in, in, in 2 Corinthians 6. It says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. 
But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. I want you to look at this very carefully because the words that start with in are the circumstances. The words that start with by are the result of the in. Okay? We commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. Doesn't that sound exciting? By purity, there's the results. By purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. That's the character that's results of the ends. Verse 7, the outward appearance of that character by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and the left. Oh, we want that, don't we? We want the word of God in us. We want the power of God in our life. We want the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left so that nothing can stand against us. We want that, right? We want verse 7, but we don't want verse 7 as much as God wants verse 7 for us. God wants verse 7 for us as well. God wanted David to be king. He wanted David to be king more than David wanted to be king. He wants us to have the power of God. He wants us to have the word of truth. He wants us to have the armor of righteousness on the right hand and the left so that life can't come and whack us around. He wants us to have that, but he knows that the only way that you get that is if you have purity and knowledge and long-suffering, kindness, and the Holy Spirit and sincere love. And the only way that you can have the fruit of the Spirit is if you go through patience, which means you ask for things and don't get them right away. Tribulations needs, which means you ask for things and never even get them, distresses, stripes, Paul was arrested and beaten publicly, imprisonments, tumults, it wasn't enough that, that he was arrested, but he actually had people rioting and chasing him down the street to beat him, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in fastings, and many of us can identify with verse six, uh, with verse five, with where we're at, and guess what, that's okay. Because David could not be king just by building his resume. He had to be stripped from everything and sent into the darkness. Into a world that he didn't know where all he had was, was five loaves of bread that reminded him of God's presence, a sword that reminded him of God's faithfulness to him, and a cave. But that was enough. And some of us right now are going through sleeplessness, and it's totally understandable and distresses, and it's totally understandable. And we're wondering, what happened to the vision that God gave me? And God says, the thing that we need to remember is that David may have heard when Samuel poured the horn of oil over in his head, he may have heard, I'm going to make you king, but that's not what he actually said. He said, before I make you a king, I have to make you into a king. Before I put you in a position where you can wield power, the power, of, the power of God and the word of truth, and before you can rightfully have the armor of righteousness on the right hand and the left, before you can have the victorious Christian life, I have to make you into someone who is Christ-like. God is more con concerned about your identity than he is your role. He's more concerned about who we become rather than what we become. And the things that we're going through right now and the things that if you're not going through them, you will go through them. Those things are not because God hates us or has forgotten us there because he loves us. David stood there and he saw the symbol of God's presence and he said, you take this bread, David, and remember that I'm faithful to the, to the nation of Israel. My presence will go with you. You take this sword, David, and you remember that I've been faithful to you personally. And then you remember the promise that I made and I simply ask you this question, do you trust me? David took those things, took the bread, took the sword, took the message from God, and into the darkness he went. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew that he had God. Here's my question to us. Do we remember God's faithfulness? Do we remember his faithfulness to us? Do you remember his promises to you and the vision that he put inside your heart? Do you trust him? and into the darkness we go. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are as long as he's with us. Let's pray.
Lord, give us a heart to not give up on you and not give up on what you said about us. Give us the humility to understand that that if you've given us a word in our lives, that it is your responsibility to use your power to bring it about for your glory, and we're just part of it. And help us to see our current circumstances not as what they really are, but as how you're using them. Every good thing and everything that is distressing us and causing us to stay up at night. Lord, use them in our lives and through our lives that we would glorify you ultimately and be an example of your faithfulness to other people. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're here this morning and, and you have something here and you want to share it with me, some, I'd love to hear it. It, it's, it encourages me to hear God's faithfulness to other people. But if you, if you need help with this, if there's something we can pray for you about, there'll be people up here t- to pray for you, okay? But I want to talk with somebody real quick. If you're here this morning, you're like, man, I don't even know that God like that. Let's sit down, let's talk. Because you need, if you haven't heard from God like this, then you need to know Jesus for real. And, and we need to talk about that. Please don't leave today without finding out about how you can know a God like that that would love you personally and know your name. All right? Trust you guys. God bless you.